Treason, betrayal, an Imperator gone rogue. An Imperator? Who? Furiosa. She took a lot of stuff from Immortan Joe. What stuff? Breeders. He's prized breeders. He wants them back. Got a handmaid on them. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. If you can't stand up, you can't do Mad Max Fury Road one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 16, which begins with Nux watching Warboys run past him on their way to grab a steering wheel, and it ends with the organic mechanic throwing his two cents in. Joining us this week from the Mad Max Bible on YouTube is longtime friend of the show, Shem Herman. Hey, everyone. Hey, Shem, long time no see. Yep, that is correct. Although I've been following you a lot, even behind the scenes with the stuff, and so maybe I'm saying too much, but yeah, I've been on too. And I've been following your stuff. We're recording this back in January, and this episode doesn't come out until April, but I think I've seen rumblings of you putting out more videos soon, right? Oh, yes, yes, there's going to be a whole lot. In fact, just yesterday I finished... uh, Recording uh, another video, which needs to be edited, and that one is going to be, because once this podcast comes out, uh, the video will already be there, so it's not a surprise what it really is going to be about. Uh, It's going to be about who is the world's worst uh, villain in Mad Max movies. Hmm. I do a deep dive on that, and deep analysis, and try to give him a rating and all that stuff. It, it was a bit of work, but it's, I'm, you know, like, apart from that, there's some other videos. I mean, I jump into topics that, you know, might upset some people, even like, you know, feminism and stuff like this, maybe themes in general of Fury Road mm. uh, and some generic stuff like, you know, 10 things that you really didn't know about Fury Road, for example, except that those things are actually things that most people don't know. Contrary to what a lot of people actually put out on YouTube, which is just sort of generic that, you know, they didn't use CGI and stuff like this. That's just not interesting anymore to me. So a lot of behind the scenes stuff. But yeah, I've been working on a lot of videos and, you know, it's taking a lot of time. I appreciate your thoroughness more than anything when it comes to those videos. You don't slouch off and just grab things off the Wikipedia page like (laughs) some podcasters I can look in a mirror and point at. (laughs) Because if you're really into this sort of stuff, like really, really into it. Then you just want to dig in like really deep into into that. So any kind of like information that's already out there, it's just like nothing new. So you you have to take it on yourself, right? To do the, you know, uh, proper research and all that stuff and talk to a lot of people. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is how I operate. And most of all, I don't want to make videos that are really disposable. And I've seen a lot of people just sit down and talk about, you know, Fury Road or Mad Max in general. And there's really not a whole lot of substance to it. But the videos are like 18 minutes long. And you can, it's not something that you really want to come back to. It's just like a one-time deal. Whereas with my videos, I really want to make something that's worthwhile and people would come back to it. And if there needs to be a revision for that video, then that, that's when the new video is going to come out. Or only when there's new information on some topics. So this is how I operate. It's not a bad way to operate. That's for sure. Getting into today's minute, we got our first look at Nux on Friday, but I wanted to push off actually introducing him until today, just because I don't like introducing more than one character per episode. So right here at the top, Nux is played by Nicholas Holt. IMDb says that he is best known for his role here in Fury Road, his role in 2002's About a Boy, also 2013's Warm Bodies, and 2014's X-Men Days of Future Past. So Nicholas Caradoc Holt was born on December 7th, 1989 in 
Walkingham, Berkshire, England, to parents Glennis and Roger Holt. He attended Sylvia Young Theater School, a school for the performing arts, to start acting as a career. His first on-screen performance was in the film Intimate Relations in 1996. From there, he had a handful of TV roles until his breakthrough performance in 2002's About a Boy, where he starred as Marcus Brewer alongside Hugh Grant. He made his first American debut in 2005 in the film The Weatherman in 2005 as Nicolas Cage's son. And at 17, he received recognition for starring as Tony Stoneham in the BAFTAs-awarded British teen drama series Skins in 2007. He was on that for two seasons until 2008, and then later he played the role of Kenny Potter in the Oscar-nominated film A Single Man in 2009 after being discovered by director Tom Ford. In 2011, he started his run as Beast in the first-class series of X-Men movies, which led to most of the films we've seen mentioned in the list before there. As for projects that are finished but not quite released yet, Holt will be appearing as J.R.R. Tolkien in the biopic of the same name. Really? Yep. Okay. Interesting. I didn't even know that was on the table. I've heard rumblings about it. Yeah. Like I said, people outside of the podcast probably know more about it because we're pre-recording this so soon. But Holt's got good range. He can go from Warboy to Zombie to Beastman. You know what? Actually, now that I think of it, those roles all seem pretty similar in some ways. I think there is a commonality <laughs> to those roles, yes. <laughs> my first exposure to him was about a boy, which my memory tells me was kind of an oddball movie. Yeah. But I remember him from the movie, so it couldn't have been that bad. Was he the boy that the movie was about? That's debatable. He was a boy in the movie, but Hugh Grant's character was also a man-child mm. who was forced to man up when this child came into his life. So about a boy could be either one of them. Gotcha. They are both children in this movie. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie, so I, I wouldn't really much know. I think it's got Tony Collette, too, plays his mother. I think the... Only other movies I've seen with Nicholas Holt in them that I can think of would be those X-Men first class series with first class, Days of Future Past. Uh, I haven't seen Age of Apocalypse yet, but him running around with like weird beast feet and sometimes covered in blue fur. That's what comes to mind when I think of him. Mm -hmm. But getting back into the minute actual, we've got Nux and he heard the drums on Friday and here on Monday, he's starting to get curious. He's got what the kids call FOMO that fear of missing out, and he's starting to call out to people looking for information. The really striking part to me about this scene is that he sees somebody that he has a personal relationship with. Everyone else before this, they're just war boys. They're just running past him. But then he sees somebody that he knows by name, and he calls out to Slit. Slit is the only one who is just walking straight forward, looking straight ahead, focusing everyone else is kind of getting amped up and being kind of rowdy and he is just focused on his destination because mm. he is purposely ignoring nux oh yeah that's that's actually a dynamic between uh slit and nux that wasn't really present in the original version of fury road i mean in fact the entire scene if we go back a little it played out a bit differently because it wasn't nux who was hooked up to max originally it was Marsov. nux was also hooked up but he was hooked up to somebody else and he got the news about Furiosa, not from the guy, like in the movie, who just sort of, you know, went back and told him that this is Furiosa and she took all the, you know, all the wives and stuff. Instead, he stepped up to the ledge where the big 
elevator is with the winchman and the winchman they actually related this information to nux so nux went back and you know got the wheel slits showed up with his thunder sticks and they sort of started going back and then there's Morsov, who's literally dying there and he's hooked up to max and then there's this whole discussion about taking max with them and Morsov. so originally there was Morsov in that scene and that's why he has kind of like a significant role in the final version of Fury Road, even though I couldn't put my finger on uh, on it and I didn't understand why he was there, why he was even, you know, mentioned by name, because I don't think there's any other warboy that has a name in it except for Slit, you know, Nux. So yeah, that's how it originally played out. And that was back when I think they were probably still called Necro Boys and had a much different look, right? Oh, no, no, no. That was after that. That was the script for the movie that was supposed to be filmed in Namibia. So that's, a, that's 2003. That's still with Mel Gibson. So... They changed the name to War Boys right after 9-11 because uh, War Boys themselves, they represent a cult of death. Mm. And it was too, just it was hitting too close to home, you know, with all the attacks and suicides and stuff like that. So they changed the name to War Boys instead of Necro Boys who's obsessed, who are obsessed with death. Getting back to Slit, the way that Slit is walking by Nux, you can already tell that he's got a plan or some sort of course of action that he knows that Nux is not going to appreciate. And so I think that's why he's very hell-bent on getting to the shrine and getting his steering wheel, not entertaining the idea of stopping and talking to Nux at all, because he doesn't want to broach a difficult subject that he knows that he'll have to confront his friend over. Hmm. Because as we're going to learn, Slit is not just Nux's associate or friend, he's his lancer. Right. And I'm sure there's a very close relationship between a driver and their lancer. You've got to be in tune. Mm -hmm. I would think so, yeah. I think a lot of it stems from jealousy, that he did not want to be a Lancer. He just wanted to get that wheel for once. Yeah, there's got to be a sort of prestige that comes with being a driver, because anyone, in theory, can throw a Lance. Not everyone can drive. And we're going to see in minutes, not this week or maybe not even the week after, but as we go on and see more of this initial big action chase scene before we hit the toxic storm we're gonna see some really impressive driving from nux we are but throughout the whole movie we also see some really impressive physical moves from slit mm -hmm. i think there are two different skill sets going on here and yes the drivers may come with a bit more prestige but it's a different skill set i don't think nux could do what slit does i don't think he has the stamina and the strength, especially in the condition that he's in. Mm, exactly, yeah. Maybe in a little while, after he's gotten a little more fresh blood, he might be able to. But right now, he absolutely could not do what Slit does. Yeah, but then again, uh, Slit is not uh, a good driver either. I mean, the way he just... I mean, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't know if I'm spoiling it, you know, the movie. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no, I don't think he's a good driver. I think he's just too much of a hothead or whatever you want to call it to just punches the car way too fast and gets himself into a situation where, you know, he will eventually reach Valhalla. That's, that's, that's all I'm going to say. That's, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Slit is good at what he does. He's good at being a Lancer. Yeah. He's the best at what he does, and what he does is not very nice to make a connection to another Australian role. In this moment, Slit is ignoring Nux, and the way he gets all of this information in a, I wouldn't say very clunky way, I think it's believable for the situation so i think that the story can get a pass because usually they say show don't tell well we've already seen everything 
we already know what's going on. We need to very quickly get this character caught up to speed. So you have this extra war boy. I just labeled him bloodshed war boy because he doesn't really show up after this that I've noticed. And he just walks in and he just dumps all of this information on Nux. Treason, betrayal, Imperator gone rogue. It's Furiosa. She's stolen stuff. Well, what stuff? He's stolen the breeders. And boom, 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 all that information that Nux needs to know. Now he's caught up on the story like we've been for however long. I think we do get a little bit of new information, mostly based on how Bloodshed, as you've labeled him, communicates this information. When he says that an Imperator stole something, Nux says, well, which one? Furiosa. The way he says Furiosa, like, can you believe it? It's Furiosa that did this. Mm. Implies that Furiosa was very trusted and also well-known. That does convey to us some new information. And that exact moment when he says Furiosa, there's a very interesting editing choice. Have you noticed that? With the tracking of the camera, it just goes so unnaturally, like it punches in. Yeah, it's just like one of those weird editing choices that I've noticed in Fury Road. It's all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it just punches in like so unnaturally. Like when I watch this movie, like, what is this for? Like, is it a mistake, like in editing? Because sometimes you can do this sort of, you know, but no, it's it's actually on purpose to punctuate that it's Furiosa, right? That's it. It just grabs your attention. It's very, very interesting. And on top of that, I mean, the entire scene to me just has like, it seems like it has really bad ADR. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but... There are several examples this week of strange instances of ADR. It gets the point across, but it just doesn't seem to line up just right. But I like this idea that you two have brought up, the idea that we need to see that the war boys regard and respect Furiosa as much as we assumed that Joe did. Because we talked, I think actually last week, about the fact that Furiosa was placed in charge of the wives to protect them from Rictus. And that sure, Joe trusted her that much to give her that responsibility, but everybody else in the Citadel knew about Furiosa as an Imperator, knew about her abilities and her apparent loyalty to Joe. So this is not just, we've got a rogue Imperator, oh, it's this faceless person, but no, like you said, it's someone important that everybody knew the legend of, which I assume would make it hurt just a bit. For sure. I mean, on top of it all, I mean, if you look at the War Boys, this is something that I wanted to talk about before, but it's the way they look. I mean, I'm talking about the way they're painted white, you know? Furiosa, if you notice, none of the Imperators are painted white because this is a symbol. I mean, those guys are painted white because they know they're about to die. So they want to, like, you know, look kind of like they're already dead or maybe look kind of like a Morton Joe. Whereas Furiosa, she doesn't. So maybe there's that extra layer of, I don't know, jealousy or something to it you know that's what i'm thinking maybe i'm off the mark but still a theory no i believe you i think the war boys realize that they're half-lifes and i think the imperators are by and large probably full lives yes people that have been around long enough or have been in situations where they're not riddled with cancers and tumors and things like that so there is a very distinct class system going on yeah based around physical health there was a moment last week and i just didn't have the time to bring it up. I think it was when we were close up on Corpus and there was an Imperator right behind him and he had stubble, but it was gray stubble. He was an older gentleman and he seemed very healthy still. So I think you're right. These people who are not painted are full lives. This is what I got from, I think I was talking to Mark Sexton about this, 
or I don't know, was it, was it um, Brandon McCarthy? I can't remember. But the way it works in the Citadel is that by default, the Warboys are not supposed to be dying. They only paint themselves white when they know they're about to die. So otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. But we don't see any of those kids, you know, not painted white except for Imperators. So, you know, maybe there's a whole bunch of kids out there who are not really that sick. You know, that's what I'm thinking because of this information that, yeah, this is the moment when they know they're going to die because they're sick. So they just paint themselves white. Aside from the white paint, you've also got some of the war boys that have the black paint on their forehead, which I know the Imperators have a lot of black paint along their forehead, which I think is just grease. Yes, it's grease, yeah. Furiosa yeah. does it. A lot of the other Prime Imperators that are directly working with Joe do it. And we were trying to think about, is that a mark of rank or something like that? Yeah. But I think the black grease actually serves more of a practical purpose than any sort of decorative purpose, because Nux does not have the paint across his forehead. Slit does. And Slit is a lancer. Lancers are up outside the vehicle in the bright light of day. And as you've probably seen before, some athletes will use either dark paint under their eyes or above their eyes, around their eyes, to reduce glare from the sun. Mm. So in the absence of a brimmed hat or any sort of sunglasses, you throw that paint and it helps with glare from the sun when you're outside in the sunlight. And if you look at Ace, he actually has some sort of sunglasses on top of, you know, his markings. <laughs> oh, it might be onto something, yeah. I like the idea that at one time it was only for a practical purpose, and now perhaps it has evolved and moved away, and it's more markings of their cult, mm. like the markings on their chest and the brand on their back, that at one time maybe they had a practical purpose. Maybe it started out as just a brand on their back, and it evolved since then into having other religious markings like at one point they could have told you this is exactly why we paint ourselves up this way and now they've just been doing it so long and so many new half-lives have been coming into the brood that they just do it because it's what they do and they might have lost that explanation perhaps i think it's probably the same thing with the grease mm -hmm. getting back to the minute because that's my favorite phrase to use when we start talking about other subjects we get to see the Giga Horse, which is Joe's chariot, get lowered down to the ground after we cut away from the blood bank. And this is the first time we get to see Joe's flagship vehicle. And Shem, you sent us a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff. And I know looking through the art book, there's a whole bunch of other things about it. But this is not the first Giga Horse that they came up with. Oh, no, absolutely not. The design of cars in Fury Road, it's such a long journey for all those cars to change their shape. The original design by Brendan McCarthy... Okay, no, let me, go, let me just go back. I'm sorry if I'm going to be rambling, but this is going to be a long story, <laughs> but it really ties in with the previous <laughs> movies and all that. You see, when Mad Max and Mad Max 2 were created, Byron Kennedy, he was in charge of cars. He was the rev head, right? He was the gearhead. And George Miller was pretty much just interested in, you know, the story and the mythos and all that stuff. So when Byron Kennedy passed, Terry Hayes took over for him. And the result were those weird-looking cars in Beyond Thunderdome. So you can tell that George Miller, he is really not that into cars, and he needs somebody else who is taking over that role. So when he started working on Fury Road with Brendan McCarthy, Brendan McCarthy had this weird vision of cars, and they all looked kind of like a weird cross between hot rods or just this weird machinery that kind of looks like those old armored cars from 1920s. 
junk everywhere. It was just, it was a mess. And so the original version of the Giga Horse looked kind of like a, it was a phallic shape, basically. It was a big penis on wheels. It kind of looked like that. <laughs> and later, this design was refined by Peter Pound because they had to sort of give direction towards, you know, all the cars. So it sort of turned into this hot rod, like almost like Hot Wheels kind of looking thing. And during the process, there was a lot of designs. And sometimes the way George Miller works, he just sort of bounces off ideas off of different studios and he basically hires people to see what they have to say on the subject. So he sent those designs to a New Zealand design studio called Weta. And they worked on those designs as well. And I have a little bit of beef with Weta because of what I heard from them, what they claim to have figured out. For example, they say that they came up with the mechanism for the polecats and stuff like this. And I've confronted it with, you know, people who actually worked on the movie and that's just not true. They didn't. But they also came up with a lot of cool different designs, like, you know, the design of Morton Joe, most of it, for example, you know, except Morton Joe was bold, you know, in their vision. But the cars that they came up with were just, oh man. I mean, Weta's design uh, of War Rig and the Giga Horse, they just didn't fit the movie at all. So that was the idea that was discarded. But again, somebody had to be there to tell George Miller that this is not going to work. And that was Colin Gibson who said that. So eventually we ended up with, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Uh, eventually we ended up with the Giga Horse that we actually see in the movie. And this is Peter Pound's design, along with the mechanics and stuff like that. So yeah, a whole lot of iterations uh, ever since, what, 1980, 1997, I believe, uh, till, wow, 2010 or something like that. So yeah, it was a long journey, a lot of designs. And I really like the final design that they settled on, the fact that they stacked those Cadillacs together and they pulled out the front and gave it the giant tires in the back. It plays on that old world belief that the Cadillac is the best car you could ever drive. So of course, Immortan Joe would have the Cadillac of Wasteland vehicles. Yeah. Two Cadillacs. Yeah. Yep. We're not going to see it in this set of minutes this week because we don't actually see any shots inside the driving compartment of the Giga Horse, but they have not only made the outside very stylized, but all along the dashboard are different emblems from makes and models of vehicles. And one of my favorite emblems attached to the dashboard, and I'll point this out when we actually get to it, but there actually is an old MFP officer badge yeah. attached to the dashboard <laughs> in the Giga Horse. And I get such a kick out of that. Yeah, it's, it's there. To me, I think it's even better that they have like Tesla badge on there mm -hmm. because it's like the representation of this healthy approach towards you know automotive industry where you don't actually you know have you know i mean you know what i mean it's just like this electric car so yeah of course i'm gonna have a tesla on there <laughs> fury road in general cars in fury road this is a video that i'm going to make about too uh, the cars in this movie are just statements and even the cars that are in the background they're statements too and it's just like it's so awesome to look at the backstories for each car and what it means i'm just going to give you one example uh, real quick the nissan skyline right I talked to Colin Gibson about this and he told me that this car is basically a big middle finger to Japanese electronics and cars because this car first of all it's just you know plastered with computer motherboards not only that it has a cross at the front and on that cross you have a teddy bear that looks almost exactly like the teddy bear from the movie AI which is a reference of course and this car was supposed to be smashed to pieces the moment it enters the pass when it crashes down on everything it was not supposed to even go even further with the chase was supposed to be just killed off right there because it was a statement that electronics in the post-apocalyptic world they mean nothing so and it goes with oh, a whole bunch of other cars you know so yeah i mean this whole movie i mean you can tell that 
the people who uh, you know worked on it they just like thought about absolutely everything and speaking of statements we go back up into the citadel where we find that slit is standing before the altar of steering wheels that have been set up you've got the giant emblem up at the top and then all of these pipes that hold these other steering wheels and as slit approaches it he tenses his hands together, raises them above his head, and he says the phrase, by my deeds I honor him, meaning Morton Joe, and then I'm assuming that his version of the typical Christian amen is him saying V8. Yeah. And then he reaches out and takes the steering wheel from the altar only after pledging himself anew to a Morton Joe. Yeah. This whole element of Fury this religious, this V8, the cult of the V8, this is such an interesting thing, and I don't want to ramble about this, but I thought about it way too much. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering what leads people to believe in such crazy things like, okay, well, why cars, right? Mm -hmm. And what I figured, and actually I talked about it, I think, I don't know who, I think Mark Sexton, I think he confirmed what I was uh, suspicious of, was that the entire cult of the V8 and this whole thing about shiny and chrome and all that stuff, it's based on the fact that people are dying in the wasteland and there's nothing you can do about it. Your flesh is flawed. If you get lumps, it's over. You can have a you know organic mechanic, quote unquote, but he's not going to help you really. So those people needed hope, right? And Morton Joe, he gave them hope by showing them that look, if you go out in the desert, you can get all those rusty parts and you can bring them back to life. And I was actually watching a YouTube tutorial on how to remove rust from you know rusty car panels and stuff. The first thing you do, you basically get an angle grinder and you grind off all the rust into bare metal, so it becomes shiny. So to them. This process of finding something in this horrible, awful place that you can actually bring back to life is like religion. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, cars, why not? You can do something with them. You can bring them back to life. And to the point where they love this fact so much that they actually brand themselves with all this stuff. You know, they want to have mechanical hearts. And Nux, he, like, literally has a mechanical heart, you know, an engine on his chest over his dying, real, fleshy heart. So to me, this is like, you know, this is a deep topic, you know, and I was really thinking about it a lot, but it's just so fascinating that just with this one thing, you know, how much depth this whole thing has. I think it makes a lot of sense that they live in this desperate, hopeless world and they find something, something that makes sense to them. And Shem, as you described it, that makes perfect sense. You take something that's dead and you make it alive again. And we say that exactly in Max's car. Max had done a really good job putting it back together, but it was still pretty beaten up and who knows how long it was going to have until it died once again. And the war boys got a hold of it and they literally made it shiny and chrome again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how they operate. And the fun thing also is that a lot of people are actually asking, like, where do they get those parts from? I don't know if you've talked to people who've been working on this movie, but essentially they trade with the buzzards. That's the idea, right? That the buzzards, like in the game, you can visit them and they live in this abandoned airport, right? And there's like uh, lighties, right? And the canonical version of that story, you can go down to the sunken city, uh, which is close to Sydney or something like that, and they have basically a supply of brand new parts that they trade with the Citadel. Mm. So that was the idea. That's what I heard. So that's where you get all those brand new parts if they need to have them, if they, don't, if, it, if they cannot restore them. But, you know, if you enter the buzz's territory, then they'll, they'll get their parts back real quick. <laughs> As Slit walks away from the altar of wheels, he's doing his best to 
be very low key because you've got certain war boys that they've got a handle on their steering wheel and they're running past Nux and they're shouting and they're whooping and hollering and Slit, just like he walked in, he's walking straight out. But Nux is observant. He sees Slit coming and he sees what Slit is holding and he reaches out and he grabs hold of his wheel and we get this little bit of a showdown where Nux is very adamant about, hey, you can't take my wheel. You're my Lancer. You're not a driver. You're not taking my car. You're not taking my stuff. And Slit, admittedly, has a very good point that if you're hooked up to a blood bag and you can't even stand up, then you can't go to war. You'll be a hurt more than a help. Yeah. These are very utilitarian boys here. I guess so. He can still drive. (laughs) I think there's also the symbolism of the fact that this is Nox's wheel. Like, he literally made it. That's his creation, so it's like, you know, it's not only your car, but he has, like, deeper attachment to it. And I think it's in the comic book. It actually shows that he made it, that he decorated it, or maybe it was in the art book. I can't remember where I, where I read this, but this whole thing is like a personal, you know, item. You don't take those things away. Mm-hmm. It's like what Jack Nicholson says in the 1989 Batman movie. You never rub another man's rhubarb. You don't take another man's steering wheel. That's quite a saying. It is a quite a saying. It's because it's Jack Nicholson in the 1989 Batman movie, and he has some real humdinger one-liners. <laughs> I'll give you that much. So while Nux and Slit are having this little back-and-forth argument, the organic mechanic who happens to be standing nearby, and he's actually on Slit's side, says, He's right, son. You're already a corpse. And he does this weird, like, finger-touched thing down the back of Nux's neck, and it just uh, it seems weird to me. It definitely also seems weird to Nux, because he does this weird shrug-off shift thing. I think he basically was just trying to wipe off sweat off his head, because (laughs) Nux was really... Not only he was fighting for his wheel, but he later in the movie talks about getting night sweats or something like that, Mm. which is a symptom of being extremely ill. So I think, yeah, he just does that. Like, like, yeah, I'm pointing out, okay, look, you're really... You're sweaty. you're, 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 You're very ill. And it pisses Nux off, you know, arguably. Because he doesn't want to sit here and die soft. Exactly, yeah. It's the worst thing that can happen to a war boy. If you're in a warrior culture, where in order to get into warrior heaven, you have to die in battle, the worst thing you can do is be sitting in a blood bank and just drift away. Speaking of drifting away, the war boy that the organic mechanic is working with while he is observing... Nux in his argument with Slit, I think that warboy might be dead. Um. <laughs> it's really hard to tell because he's not the focus of the scene, so he's kind of in and out. Yeah. But you see the organic mechanic holding onto his wrist, and then the next time we see him, he's laying his head backwards instead of it flopping forwards, mm. and then he doesn't move the rest of the time. Oh, hold on. I need to see I that. I think he might be dead. That is a good catch. Hold on. I got to see this. Just one second because I have it playing. Yes, there's a war boy who's just literally just lumped and like he just lays there. <laughs> so if, if he's not dead yet, he's probably mostly dead. You mean he'll be stone dead in a moment? Yes. Toss him on the cart. <laughs> well, that pretty much brings us to the end of this minute. So we'll uh, have to pick up where we left off on Wednesday. Shem, what would you like to plug here at the end of today's episode? Pretty much my YouTube channel. So the channel is called The Mad Max Bible. And if you want to find out a whole lot of cool things about all of the Mad Max movies, then please visit it. It's on YouTube. Please subscribe, watch the videos without ads, preferably. And, you know, um, feel free to, 
I don't know, stay shiny and chrome. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just, just you know, enjoy the videos. So pull up Mad Max Bible on your browser and just set the videos to just auto-repeat view. And then uh, open up another window, maybe like an in incognito mode, and start playing the videos on that there. And just let it run. Let those views really <laughs> rack up. Exactly. <laughs> As for us, we will be coming back on Wednesday, like I said. Nux is going to come up with a fantastic idea that will let him leave the blood bank. It's going to take a little bit of convincing to get Slit on board, but eventually he does it. From there, we'll be hitting the open road as the fleet sets out after Furiosa and the War Rig. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 16 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time. <laughs>